listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Um, good morning. Try that again, although I, I guess my voice carried enough. Um, uh, we got some work to do this morning, so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, as we continue our series in what has been said, probably the uh, clearest, most comprehensive book ever written about the truth of Jesus Christ. And, and when we say comprehensive, that's really what we mean in the sense that there's not a space that Paul doesn't touch on and no area that's not accessible to the truth of who Jesus is. And so what Paul is going to continue to do for the church in Rome, but even specifically for us, is kind of dismantle this idea that we put the gospel on the shelf and we say, the gospel is just about placing my faith in Jesus so that I'm saved and heaven is my prize. And he's going to pull that off the shelf and he's going to say, oh, no, no, <laughs> the gospel is so much more than that. The, the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection is that which has power for absolutely everyday life. This is, this is the gospel in the trenches. This is, this is going to be and has been for us up to this point the truth of where Jesus meets us, where we're at, and, and continuing the work of transformation as we're realizing the assessment that every day, every moment, every moment of every day, we need the life-transforming power of Christ. There is not a second or a breath that you take that the truth of the Word of God and the substance of who Christ is, isn't the very thing that we need to nourish our lives. Now, we've talked before in Romans 1.16 is kind of the, the setting point, really the theme of the entire book. And what does he say? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all those who believe, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And so what he's saying already is that access to the truth of the gospel, the sole material is belief. Belief in what? Belief in Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection played the necessary payment that we deserve for our sin so that we could be united with God now and up through eternity. So there's a relational component that he's going to continue to drive us towards. But then he's moved on, and Jared did, I thought, an impeccable job last week, is we realize that he's setting the stage for us to begin to understand that one of the most critical components of being able to understand the fullness of the gospel is to be able to understand the bad news before we understand the good news. And so there's a diagnostic that begins to take place as, as Paul gives an assessment of really the human condition. In 1997, there was a freighter ship that was making its way to New York City, and it was filled with those huge uh, boxes, I guess you were, those steel uh, boxes, that, those containers that, that carried all of this material, and it was on its way to New York City. 
And the process of that, this container ship got tossed to and fro by the, the wind as well as some of the storms that had come up, and 61 containers were lost at sea. They didn't know why. They didn't know what necessarily had happened. But in the process of that, in 1997, these 61 containers made their way to the bottom of the ocean, likely to never be seen again. However, there's a beach in Cornwall, Britain, and the beach is not filled with beautiful sand and seashells. It's the one place in the world that's filled with Legos. Legos. From this these container ships, there was one container that was filled with 4.6 million pieces of Legos that had all washed up on this beach in Cornwall. If anybody steps on a Lego, that's not a beach you want to go to. I don't imagine many people are sunbathing there. However, one of the assessments of one of the um, marine biologists and oceanographer says this, the most important profound lesson I learned from the Lego story is that things that go to the bottom of the ocean don't always stay there. They can be carried around the world seemingly randomly, but subject to the planet's currents and tides. The incident is a perfect example of how even when inside a steel container, sunken items don't always stay sunken. Why do I share that? I want to tell you that I think that that's what Paul's getting at. So last week, Jared mentioned that one of the basis of, of Paul's assessment of the human condition is that we suppress the truth about God. We lock the truth about God in this steel container ship and hope that in some way, in all of the tumultuousness of the world, that it'll just stay there and we can live life the way we want to live it, think the way we want to think without any consequences. And then when there are consequences, we blame God for the consequences. And he gives us this analysis of the human condition, and he tells us, look, at the end of the day, so often you want to think that truth is something that we get to manufacture, and the Bible is fundamentally clear the source of truth is God himself. And as much as we want to lock that in a steel container ship and throw it into the middle of the ocean, we cannot deny and never will be able to deny the reality that truth exists outside of us. And so often... Um, what Paul does in, in this first chapter, really, of the book of Romans is lay out the consequences and the reality of what ends up happening as we suppress the truth. And there was a whole host of sins that he communicated very clearly about the significance of putting God in a box and throwing it in the middle of the ocean, hoping that he will never be seen again until we meet hardship and we ask for his help. But Nonetheless, he's telling us that these are all the things that you can expect. And if you want to reread Romans chapter 1 and you get to the end of it, he gives us four categories in which all of those things can find themselves in. Faithless, ruthless. What else does he say? Let me get my glasses here. He tells us that uh, dishonoring God and all of those things, that it was faithless, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So he gives us this whole... Uh, assessment of the condition that can be fallen into those four categories that there's foolish there's faithless it's ruthless and it's heartless that you can see humanity on that trajectory where there's less and less wisdom less and less compassion less and less 
heartfelt love for the people around you. That's when what happens when you try and keep God in this container ship and, and keep him in the, the middle of the ocean. That you, you suppress the truth about God. These are the results. And so you would think, okay, Paul, message received. Let's get on to the good news. He's not there yet. <laughs> We've got a couple more weeks of making sure that the diagnostics of the human condition and our hearts are laid before ourselves very, very, very clearly. Because we've already said before that there are three reasons that Paul wrote the book of Romans. One is to clarify the gospel, two is to unify the church, and three is to prove that God is not only righteous but consistent and fair in how he behaves. The way he acts towards his creation is both righteous and fair. And so now he's giving us an assessment of our condition. And I think he turns his attention in chapter 2 to not just the sin that the Romans see around them and all of the different decisions that they're making and the joy that they're experiencing in this life by doing whatever they want and where it ultimately leads. I think he now turns his attention to the Jews. Chapter 2, I think, is the beginning of his assessment of what happens when you put religion on top of a spiritual condition that is broken that you're not willing to admit. <laughs> so when you baptize religion in the hearts of humankind without the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is what you get. And here's what he says. He's going to tell us that it's not just that humans are suppressing the truth about God. He's also telling us that we suppress the truth about ourselves. This is going to be a fun sermon. <laughs> I mean, that's where he's leading us is to this recognition of we can't pull back far enough and contain the human condition as to those of everyone around us that sins, but thankfully we're okay because we're religious. It's, it's the analysis, specifically from the Jewish standpoint, that they wanted to baptize religion as a set of rules and requirements that if you abided by, you were all set and things were okay, so that then you could make the analysis of those who weren't living up to what you thought that they would live up to. That there's a, a, a sense in which there's a, a, a leadership author that wrote it this way. And he says, many Christians define sin as the sum total of acts which they themselves do not commit. <laughs> That's pretty good, if you ask me. Because there is a sense that as we start to think about the condition, and we could even get to the end of Romans chapter 1, and we could say to ourselves, thank God that's not me. And then you move to chapter 2. And you say to yourself, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Here now, there's an analysis of the bucket or the container of an ability to suppress the truth about ourselves falls in the container of self-righteousness. There's a point in which we actually feel better about ourselves when we look at a person that struggles with a sin that we don't struggle with. Religion, when you baptize religion in the, the means of works and doing what we think we can do to earn God's favor, we end up finding ourselves feeling like we're better off than we really are. And, and Paul wants to be absolutely 100% riveted and wants us to deal with the fact that the human condition is the human condition and that sin and its tendencies lives and breathes inside of every single one of us, myself included. There is no one free from the gaze of the gospel. 
There is no one that could walk out, read Romans chapter one, read Romans chapter two and say, man, I feel really good that I'm doing such a great job being a Christian. And that's what Paul wants us to get to, is not to say that there's not a level of transformation that the gospel does inside of our hearts, but there has to be a willingness to admit that the fact that the world needs Jesus is the same fact that you and I do as well. That there is not a moment where somehow in some way we can journey in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ long enough to get back and look back on our journey and have pride be the result of saying, oh, this is awesome. Look how great I am comparatively. That would be a wrong application of the truth of the gospel. The gospel isn't trying to make you a better person. It's to change your life. That the fruit that's born is what? Fruit of the Spirit. Right? It's God's work inside of us so that God receives the glory so that we're not looking at our lives being like, oh man, look at all my fruit. Right? You would say to a person who said that to you, I'm not sure that person fully understands the gospel. Right? Because this is where he's moving us towards is that the reality is not just suppressing the truth about God. Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 is about suppressing the truth about ourselves. And so here's what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, for everyone who judges. For if passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because the judge practices the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who would judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will not escape the judgment of God? And so he sets up this courtroom scene for us, and the image is this. You stand in judgment over someone else, and you're well aware that their sin is sin. You know that they're guilty. You're aware of the details of the crimes that they've committed. And you are not somehow explaining them away. You are fully clear as to the decisions that they made and the crimes that they've committed. And you stand as judge, I stand as judge over them, and I've committed those same crimes, but yet somehow in some way I would want to author punishment on them because their sins are greater than mine. And so that's the assessment, is that we suppress the truth about ourselves because in some way we've contained this religious perspective about life into the container of self-righteousness. There's no other word that the Bible uses besides that. When we say self-righteousness, that's what we mean. We somehow in some way think that by doing things or feeling better about ourselves or that there are other people that are worse around us, we are more righteous. The gospel is abundantly clear. Righteousness comes through faith alone in Christ alone. You and I have no righteousness of ourselves. None. Right? He's going to move to chapter 3 as the, the news of our human condition continues to unfold and moves downstream. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? There's not a moment where we could rely on our resume as to the reason why we're okay. Your resume is not good. Neither is mine. So the role and the goal of, of chapter two is to say this, don't believe your own press. Like you and I are in desperate need of the gospel daily. And how do you know that to be true? 
Well, I know it to be true in my life. Why? Because I get frustrated with people. I've yelled at anger at my wife. Somehow, I'm not sanctified yet. I've said things that I shouldn't have said. I've thought things that I shouldn't have thought. I, I struggle with things that I feel like I shouldn't be struggling with anymore because I've been a Christian for all these years. And yet, the reality is daily, I am in need of the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the gospel clarification point that I think is essential as, as Paul unfolds chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Remember, clarify the gospel, unify the church, and prove that God is both righteous and fair. The gospel clarif- clarification point in this text is this. The gospel never elevates one person as more valuable than another. We do, and that's our problem. Right? When we think about the world around us, and if we just took... A, a, a snapshot of even just the people in our community, and there'd be a sense of the different challenges and suffering and sin that people struggle with around us, and the condition of man is, is placed before us on a daily basis, and we see how difficult and rotten things are in this world. One of the reasons is because we suppress the truth about God. <laughs> That there's not a need and a hunger, so people are doing their own thing. Like Jared said last week, that the book of Judges is a great illustration because what did it always say from one judge to the next? Well, they did what was right in their own eyes. That human condition has not changed. That human condition needs rescue from the power of Jesus Christ. And so the clarification point is to never say, and as he's dealing with the challenge within the church at Rome, and there's these Jews and they're Gentiles, and the Jews are saying, hey, it's more righteous to do it this way because we are God's chosen people, and we've been here for longer, and so just listen to us and do what we say. And the Gentiles are like, no, I mean, I think there's freedom in the gospel, and and they're, they're butting heads about all of these things. There is a sense what Paul is competing against within the Jewish people in this church is to say, you actually think you're better than them. You actually think that somehow, in some way, you're more significant. God's chosen people. I mean, you can imagine the conversation in the church, right? Here comes the Jew coming into the sanctuary and be like, oh, there's the God's chosen people again, if there was sarcasm back then. But you would imagine, right, that there, there would be just this conflict that was taking place. And the gospel clarification point in chapter 2 is abundantly clear. God shows no favoritism. Like it, The standard of what needs to be met for intimacy with Jesus Christ Perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. That's the standard. You can't meet it, neither can I. Thus the reason we have someone else's righteousness that has been given to us. Thus Jesus' death on the cross is full payment for our sin. We are given his righteousness, adopted into God's family, and he takes on our sin. The only way that we could ever declare intimacy with God is through the righteousness of another. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our value is given to us by God. And so we stand on a level playing field and we say to everyone that we look at, Jew, Greek, slave, free, Christian, non, your value is found in Jesus Christ alone and I am no better than you. I'm saved by Jesus Christ and I daily need rescue. So it's not an elevation of importance It's an absolute desperate cry for Jesus to be all that we need. And the sufficiency of his love for us is what motivates our understanding of how we move into the world around us. Imagine a church that was so utterly convinced that their value was found in Christ alone through faith alone, and that it wasn't about what they did, and they didn't feel better than anyone else around them, and they moved in to the world around them. And they said, look, 
<laughs> I get it. I got a lot of things that God is doing in my own heart, but I just want to introduce you to someone who has changed and is changing my life. Imagine that message being what is shared in all of the places and all of the avenues that God has put us. That's the message of the gospel. That's the clarification point, is that, 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 that never elevates one person above someone else. It moves us to say, in the midst of your struggle, let me communicate to you that Jesus is enough. So where does that move us? Church unity point. Here's the second point that I think is critical in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and here's what he says. Knowing Christ means that we all stand on equal footing, those in need of Jesus. Let's just, history's a great teacher, right? And if you looked back on some of the ups and downs within the context of church history, here's what you'd find. People fight. (laughs) Churches fight. Christians fight. And they fight one another. And often, the source of that conflict is not fully just a theological disagreement about the truth of God's word. It's a practical disagreement about the fact that they feel like they understand God's word better than anyone else. And they begin to apply that on top of their interactions with one another and what ends up fighting, what ends up happening. There's this conflict that continues to arise as Christians and followers of Christ feel like somehow in some way they know better than anyone else. Theology, the truth of God's word, is meant to humble us every time. It's not to generate pride as though we're experts, not that we shouldn't study God's word or that we ever compromise on the essentials. You never have to surrender your theological commitments to move into the world and communicate the truth of the gospel. God gives us this compelling reality that the truth of God's word is clear and knowable and accessible. And one of those truths is that daily I'm trying to suppress the truth about my need for him. And the church unity challenge, how many fights have taken place, even in our generation, about things that did not end up dealing with really the gospel, but only preferences? It's the human condition. Man, we default to wanting to feel as though being religious and nobilizing our preferences and then planting scripture on top of them and making ourselves feel better about someone else is anti-gospel. The gospel gives us a reality that we are daily in need of Jesus. Now, do we have those conversations? Do we wrestle with the culture that God builds in the context of the church? Of course we do. We talk together. We love together. We pursue Christ together. We see him transforming our lives through the truth of God's word and through one another. But we commit to letting God be God and to author his presence because who's actually the chief shepherd of this church? It ain't me. And if it is, fire me because that's not what we want like we have seen so frequently churches who were mobilized and marshaled and focused on a person and that person is not jesus it's a dangerous place to be because every pastor in every pulpit in all of humanity throughout all of history is a sinner every single And the point is to say what God wants us to do as we think about our own human condition is that we have a tendency to suppress the truth about ourselves. So what's the goal? The goal is to say, all right, let's allow the gospel to be a microscope on our lives, not a telescope on the world. You see the difference? (laughs) Like, let's think about the 
intricacies of what God is doing in my heart and allow that self-awareness and self-evaluation rather than take a telescope and look at the world and say how bad things are everywhere else and miss the fact that the bad things that are everywhere else live and breathe inside of me. I'm capable, according to Romans chapter 2, of absolutely every sin. I'm capable. I'm capable. The human condition lives and breathes inside of me. And circumstances can be such, those storms and the tumultuousness of the world and all of those things that that shipping container full of Legos year after year was tumbled over by all of these currents will eventually break open. (laughs) And what's inside will come out. And that's where the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ is my only hope. The church unity point is that knowing Christ means we all stand on equal footing, those in need of Jesus. Now, we have to deal with something very significant, and this is where I said we got to go to work. We got to deal with something significant in this text, because it comes across, if you read the last portion of this text, as though God bases his assessment and judgment based on what you do. He communicates, right? You can hear the words in Romans chapter 2. This is what he says. He will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth and but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There's a tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. That seems to be in complete contrast to everything we know about what Paul has said, right? Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God of salvation. For what? All who do the right things, all who do awesome stuff. And you don't get saved if you're a jerk and don't do good things and you do bad things. That's not what he's saying. So again, belief is the core component of what he's talking about in Romans 1.16. And so he moves us into this conversation. And here's what he's saying. If I can simplify it as absolutely as best as possible, What lives inside of you eventually comes out. And I think that's what he's saying here. That ultimately, the reality of the saving power of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel inside of your heart, you and I are going to meet absolutely shakable times where things are just at a loss and we're not sure what to do with them. And there will be frustration and anger and bitterness and jealousy and covetousness. All of those things will come out. But in relationship with Jesus Christ, we can see those things for what they are. We can allow the transforming power of grace to cut us, cut those things away from us and allow ourselves to grow in intimacy with Jesus Christ. So as we see, we realize we're forgiven. We appropriate his goodness in our lives and we find ourselves changed. That's the progression of the Christian life. How do I think that that's what he's saying? What's inside ultimately comes out? Because he tells us as he gives us an indication, as he's speaking specifically likely to the Jewish audience here, about their own self-righteousness and their own uh, reality of being God's chosen people, he gets himself to this place. And what does he tell us about God's character? He tells us this in verse 4, and I think this is really important for us to kind of circle because I think it, it, it brings together the glue for this entire text. Verse 4 is this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? That's it, right? 
Like that's the centerpiece of what Paul, the argument that Paul is dealing with with the human condition is that God has been unbelievably and remarkably gracious to you and I. There has been a mercy and a kindness from our Father where he could just smote us. What a great word, right? He could just, I mean, literally, there is plenty of evidence for him to say, look, this isn't working. Judge you. You're out. Plenty of, he would be totally fair and right in doing every single one of those things. But the kindness of God is displayed on the cross and the invitation of intimacy with him is not so that we could become self-righteous people and say, oh, look, I'm all set. Life is good. Let's sin some more that grace may abound. He's going to talk about that later in the book of Romans because it's a logical conclusion. If we see grace as radical as it is, it's a likely assessment for us to make of saying, well, look, I could tell the world how gracious God is if I show them how sinful I am, right? Like I do all of these things and whatever I want and then I can say, oh, but God loves me and he's changed my life. So that, here's the reality. The goal of what God is doing is that his forbearance, his grace, his kindness towards you, its purpose is to turn you. That's what repentance is. You're going this way, and you are hell-bent on your own destruction. You're living as the one who suppresses the truth about God. You're living as though one who suppresses the truth about themselves. We're confused and deceived in so many different categories, and we're bent on this. We experience the kindness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and we understand the scope, at least in part, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's the turn? Repentance. A recognition of our need for Jesus daily. Repentance is not a one-time deal. Repentance is a daily heart posture before a God who loves you. The gospel clarification point, the gospel never elevates one person above another. The church unity point, knowing Christ means that we all stand on equal footing, those in need of Jesus. Character of God point, God's mercy freely given leads to repentance, not license. Leads us to being changed by the power of Jesus Christ. There, I think the outcome of understanding Paul's commitment to really clarifying the human condition would be one of humility. I would never want you to walk away feeling discouraged, unworthy, and undervalued. The point of this diagnosis of the human condition in our own heart is to allow our lives ultimately to be surrendered before a God who loves us, has authored our lives, who's created us since the foundations of the world, who is in the process of growing and transforming and changing us. So every moment of every day, Jesus Christ is sufficient for everything. Every moment of every day, Jesus Christ is sufficient for everything. So repentance is letting go and allowing God to be the one that transforms our hearts and our human condition. So if we think that often we can keep our sin or our suppression of God locked in that steel container of our heart, or we can padlock it with self-righteousness and feel like that we're okay, Paul is going to continue to pick that lock of self-righteousness and open the door, not so that you could feel terrible about yourself, but that you and I can feel that we desperately need Jesus daily. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we look to you as the God who has been kind and is continually kind to us. And the kindness of God is meant, its purpose, to lead us to repentance. 
Father, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would be generating inside each of us that very hunger and desire. God, I know that there are things that are embedded in my own life that I need to repent of, to, to turn and to recognize that I'm in agreement with you as to the depth of the sin that lives inside of me, and I need your rescue. So I come to you, Father, just asking that you would generate a level of humility and transformation in my own soul. God, I, I need change. And here's the challenge. I don't even know where I need it, but you do. And so, Father, I pray for my own heart and the hearts of all of those who are here this morning that you would do a work, that you would help us not suppress the truth about you or about ourselves but we would freely be open to allowing you to do the work of change inside each of us for your glory and for your fruit.